I grew up in the 90s, a time when if you asked a kid what they wanted to be when they grew up, they answered with something traditional, something typical, doctor, firefighter, rocket scientist. I called my mom to ask what I used to answer. She thought professional athlete, though it certainly wasn't podcaster. Podcast didn't even exist when I was growing up. Ask a kid now, and do you know what one of the most likely answers will be? Social media influencer or content creator. But what about a kid born and raised in Africa? I'm not sure. I asked my BMIC Shio, he thought they'd also say creator. While there is so much said in the collective global discourse about creators and the creator economy, it's a much less prevalent discussion in the African context. We know, of course, that African markets as a whole lag behind global trends in terms of internet penetration and utilization, or metrics like active social media users as a percentage of the population. But as the continent gets even younger and more digitally native, it's time we talk about the creator economy in the African context. And this conversation is important amidst a few secular trends as well. One is population growth. As the African population gets younger and continues to grow at a staggering rate, where are the jobs going to come from? And how realistic is it that some or many Africans can make a living as a full-time creator? And the second trend is the increasing spread of African culture across the globe, and in particular throughout Europe and the US. From Afrobeats to African originals produced by Netflix, to venture-backed e-commerce platforms creating opportunities for African fashion designers to export to the world, to what extent can Africans monetize their creativity, not only on the continent, but globally? And to what extent can Africans, as owners of culture and intellectual property, participate in the upside? This episode is a continuation of our season-wide exploration of value chains. One fundamental shift in technology gave rise to the creator economy, powered by the big social media platforms. And another shift is changing the nature of the relationship between creators and platforms, and creators and their audience as well. So what does this mean for African creators? Let's find out. Before we start, we'd like to take a moment to thank our partner, MFS Africa, for their sponsorship of the entirety of this season of The Flip. In this episode, we're talking to and about creators, and what many creators do best is tell stories. MFS Africa is a storyteller as well. So I sat down with Zama Ndlovu, MFS Africa's head of brand marketing and communications, to talk with her about storytelling. So storytelling is important because when you have a long-term mission like we do, and we say making borders matter less, what you're trying to do in the ecosystem is not just increase the transactions that go through your network. You are trying to build a supporting ecosystem that grows the amount of activity that's happening in, in that ecosystem. When you have that kind of long-term mission, it's more important that you tell a long-term story. And a long-term story is not just about the transactions themselves, but it's about impact. It's about what lives that they change. It's about how they change commerce and the potential for that market, that geography, that continent. You want to help people think a little deeper about questions that go beyond your product. Questions like regulatory um, decision-making and how regulation impedes or facilitates innovation and growth. You want to tell stories about the kind of interesting commercial ventures that citizens are doing on the ground and how a service like yours, not necessarily yours, but like yours, helps to unlock more potential. And you want to kind of plant the seeds for people to think 
bigger than just I'm regulating a transaction to I am regulating for development and, and growth, which is really the question in Africa. So storytelling is, is a lot different to normal kind of everyday product marketing in that sense, because it really looks at the long-term potential of the market you're in and the geography you're in. And it tells the story beyond just your commercial viability. It actually tells the story of the potential of that market, of its people, of growth in different ways and not just growth in terms of your bottom line. We'll hear a bit more from Zama later in the show on storytelling and the types of stories MFS Africa is telling. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. Let's start with a brief history of the creator economy from a technology and strategy and value chain perspective. Back in 2015, Stratechery's Ben Thompson coined the term aggregation theory in a piece I'll link to in the show notes to explain how the internet and these so-called aggregators in particular fundamentally disrupt all of the industries they touch. Video, taxis, hotel booking, advertising in the classifieds, and perhaps the best example of all, media. Previously, media companies were those who solved the hardest and most scarce part, which was distribution. Radio stations had their radio frequencies, TV channels had their distribution deals, and newspapers owned the printers and distributed along their delivery routes. But the internet made the distribution of content free. And in the case of social media platforms, where content is user-generated, the supply of content is free as well. These aggregators get their name by aggregating users, Rather than controlling distribution of scarce resources like a newspaper, aggregators control demand. And in distributing content for free, these aggregators monetize their users' attention by selling ads. This shift happened at a time when there was a great proliferation of smartphones and smartphone cameras in hundreds of millions of people's pockets. And these two things put together gave rise to user-generated content on these aggregators, the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Google, Twitter and TikTok, and these aggregators have built massive, massive value-capturing businesses in the process. Around the time that the initial aggregators were getting their footing, Kevin Kelly, a founder of Wired Magazine, penned a seminal essay entitled 1,000 True Fans, which I've linked to in the show notes. The premise is that any creator can make a living with 1,000 true fans, those that will buy anything you produce, sell something for $100 to your 1,000 true fans, and that's $100,000 of revenue per year. Not bad for an internet creator in 2008. The point was, you didn't need to make a hit to make a living. All you needed was a thousand true fans and a direct relationship with them. And on the internet, with its billion plus users, finding and selling to your niche was, theoretically, without geographical constraint. Since then, a continued rise of creator tools like Stripe for payments and Substack for newsletters and merchandising companies that enable creators to launch brands and membership platforms like Memberful or Patreon or OnlyFans, these tools have made it cheaper and easier than ever before to not only create content and distribute it on the internet, but for creators to sell directly to their true fans. But we know, in the African context, that a commensurately low rate of social media usage and digital commerce has had a limiting effect on the scope of the opportunity for African creators. African content has largely been an export product, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But at the same time, how does the local consumer market get developed? Let's start there with the platforms. 
We want to make sure that we're supporting our creators so that they can express and showcase their creativity on the platform so that they are seen by audiences that are local in Africa as well as across the globe. That's Boniswa Sidwaba, who's responsible for content operations for Sub-Saharan Africa at TikTok. We definitely encourage both. And sometimes you'll see that a creator is, is aiming to reach a local audience as well as a global audience to obviously make sure that they're tapping into what TikTok is and, and why TikTok is so phenomenal, is the fact that your content can travel. These platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and others, they're reliant on their users to create the content that they distribute. And they've built initiatives and teams to work with and support local creators accordingly. One of our main um, focuses is to make sure that we are localizing and we're making sure that the campaigns and the content that you're seeing in app is relatable. And I can very quickly kind of make an example of the genre Amapiano, which is a proudly South African sound. It's grown on the platform and it's currently sitting on about 1.2 billion views. Language is an important thing as well. We are definitely promoting and making sure that we're highlighting and excavating indigenous languages on TikTok. As part of their localization efforts, TikTok is focused on helping select local creators build out their businesses. Recently, we launched uh, the Rising Voices Project, uh, which is an incubation project, um, a creator incubation project that is looking to upskill creators of color. And this program lasted for six weeks and we introduced local creators to digital skills. We introduced them to mentors in the industry so that they could get a sense of how it's possible for a content creator to actually make money and earn a living off being a content creator. While that helps TikTokers monetize in a general sense, there are also ways in which platforms can help creators monetize directly. For TikTok, they monetize via advertising. And in their effort to get more local advertisers to buy ads on the platform, TikTok leverages their creator marketplace to create direct monetization opportunities for top creators. I can say that at, at TikTok, creator monetization is top of mind, and we continue to offer opportunities for brands to work with creators that they choose to work with to help them develop engaging and interactive content for campaigns that they might be running for specific audiences. TikTok and others benefit when creators are making a living off of creating content because they'll keep creating more and better content. And the more that happens in African markets, the better. I definitely think we're going to see more and more creators make a living off of what they do on TikTok. It's already happening outside of what we directly work on or directly facilitate. And those people very quickly start to build those audiences and they very quickly start to grow and become the stars on TikTok and brands reach out to them because they can see that they're valuable and they can see that they appeal to millions of people. So yeah, I definitely see creator monetization blowing up in Africa. But there's a bit of a problem here. Platforms have a business model. Sell ads alongside creators' content. They sell it at a CPM, cost per mil, or the cost per 1,000 views. So how much is a view worth? Nigeria's CPM is like around a dollar for 1,000 views. Averagely, depending on what content it is, it might be higher a little bit, it might be lesser. US usually has like $10 averagely. That's Tayo Aino. He's a Nigerian filmmaker and YouTuber whose eponymous YouTube channel boasts 340,000 subscribers at the time of this recording. So somewhere like US has a higher CPM because advertisers are willing to pay more money to advertise their videos if it's views coming from the USA because, because of the demographic there. People in the US, they shop more online 
there's more internet penetration. People are willing to buy stuff online more than it is in Africa. So advertisers are more willing to pay more money for an advert on a YouTube video in somewhere like the USA than somewhere like Africa where the spending power is low and not a lot of people just make those purchases online. Like if you make a video and the video has, let's say, 100,000 views, if most of your viewers came from Nigeria, you probably make maybe like $100 on that video. But that same video, if most of the viewers came from USA, you would make $1,000. For an African creator with a largely African audience, monetization can be difficult on a platform like YouTube, which offers a revenue share of its advertising revenue with its creator. I think it was like two years. It was two years till I was able to make a sustainable income from YouTube AdSense. Now, while the earning opportunity via AdSense may be tenuous for an African creator, given the limitations from a CPM perspective, YouTube is actually one of the better platforms in terms of revenue share and creator monetization. At least half of YouTube's revenue gets paid out to creators via their YouTube partner program. Now, TikTok, for example, has a creator fund, a fixed pool in which revenue is shared with its creators. It's $200 million in the US and $2 billion globally, a nice sized number to be sure, but it's a static pool of money that's shared by creators. One YouTuber and TikTok creator, Hank Green, recently published a video, which I'll link to in the show notes, about this problem. TikTok's fund is a fixed amount, so the more TikTok grows, the less its creators make. It speaks to this question of where value accrues between creators and platforms. There are more views on the platform. It's grown. There are more creators. There are more users. TikTok is earning more money. But the pool is the same size. So there are more views with the same number of dollars. So you make fewer dollars per view. Literally. When TikTok becomes more successful, TikTokers become less successful. Hank argues that the creator fund should be much larger. Billion dollars seems like a whole heck of a lot of money. Then you're me and you have to go and check and find that ByteDance's revenue was $36 billion last year. Now, ByteDance is bigger than just TikTok, so that wasn't all TikTok revenue. But it does make you curious. While there is a long tail of creators and a distribution of revenues across the power curve, the goal isn't to flatten out the curve, but to bring up the bottom and make it possible for those creators to make a living. If TikTok had the same partnership with creators that YouTube has, TikTokers would be making, at minimum, 16 cents per thousand views. That is six times, six times what they are making now. Every creator in the creator fund who thinks to themselves, wow, $1,000 a month, that's $12,000 a year. That person could be a full-time creator. They could be thinking about expanding, about hiring, about creating a business in their community for their audience. This is the economic engine that drove YouTube forward and TikTok is just letting it leak out of the tub into their bottom line. This change would not increase the number of full-time TikTokers by six times. It would increase it by a thousand times. Because just from the structure of the platform, the number of creators making $6,000 a month is a thousand times more than the number of creators making a thousand dollars a month. Like that's just how it works. The tail is very long, the, the drop is very steep. Oh, and I should mention, no African countries are eligible for the TikTok Creator Fund, meaning no creators from any of the African countries can earn a share of revenue from the fund. Now, I don't mean to pick on TikTok in particular, as other platforms aren't necessarily much better. It's just that Hank Green happened to publish a really good video about it recently. But the point is that because of this monetization dynamic, creators in general and African creators in particular need to supplement the growth of their business from a monetization perspective with brand partnerships. So I've never reached out for sponsorships. I've tried in the past, but it didn't work. And after spending time, I realized that most of these brands, they don't really understand 
the influencer market. They don't understand the creator world. They don't understand that you're doing a sponsorship with somebody who has built a niche audience. Makes more sense than using traditional media. Brands are just opening up to the fact that creators have this influence and creators can help them market their product. So I think most of my sponsorships have come within this year. Like I've had 90% of my sponsorships this year alone. Now, the brand partnership and influencer marketing environment is definitely evolving and growing in the African context, as evidenced by Tayo's recent success in striking brand deals. And in our tech ecosystem, recent partnerships between Burnaboy and Chipper Cash and WizKid and Flutterwave are evidence of that as well. So AdSense revenue and brand partnerships work because it effectively subsidizes the content for the audience, allowing creators to monetize while their content remains free. But back to Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans. What about selling a product or service and monetizing one's audience directly? That's an open question too. In an environment with low digital commerce, can creators like Tayo sell a product or service directly to their audience? And if so, what would they sell? I don't think any African YouTuber has been able to create like a successful match line where they sell like clothes or stuff to their subscribers. For Tayo's part, he's conducting an experiment on this monetization question, an online course which I've linked to in the show notes. Me personally, I'm currently working on a course, a YouTube course. And it's also like an area I also want to test out and go into. If you're able to create value, it has to either solve a problem to help people make more revenue, to help people learn more stuff. People would pay to learn. So a course or a digital product or something that makes people's lives better in some way or form, I think it's something that can also scale and can work in Africa. So speaking of monetization and sponsorship, after the break, we'll hear from two titans of the Nigerian entertainment industry more on this direct monetization question and on building the infrastructure in the local context. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, MFS Africa. Earlier in the show, we spoke about storytelling with Zama Njlovu, MFS Africa's head of brand marketing and communications. For MFS Africa, their story is largely about borders, as they work to make them matter less. We all know historically how African borders were created. They were other people's creations, other nations' creations, and, and they did not consider the ways in which we as Africans um, related to each other traded with each other, didn't barely considered our groupings as Africans. So there is a very big story around how those borders were created and how, despite them being there, Africans have continued to keep those long-established relationships and trading routes that they've always had. And when you look at particularly at informal trade between countries, you see these long-established relationships persisting. So for us, making Borders Metalist is about creating an infrastructure where people can send money to whomever they want to send money to and where transactions can be as easy as making a phone call. What it means for us is that a person shouldn't feel a boundary between themselves and the transaction that they want to make, they should be able to just do it the same way you can just make the phone call. And we believe that that unlocks immense potential. Just before the break, we heard from YouTuber Tayo Aino on his endeavor to sell a product directly to his audience. 
When it comes to direct monetization, the question remains, who pays? In terms of paid for content and direct monetization, African Creative remains largely an export product because most of the payers aren't on the continent. There's one person who knows this all too well. My name is Jason Njoku. I'm the founder of Iroko. Iroko is a leading streaming service for Nollywood and Nigerian films. And Jason has shared a lot publicly over the company's 10-year journey on the challenges they faced selling a subscription service to the Nigerian market. I guess for me, the one true aspect is just content monetizes way better in North America and Western Europe than it does in Africa, unfortunately. As much as the content is coming from Nigeria, the vast majority of the actual value is being created and monetized outside of Africa. I mean, that's just pure, like, you know, GDP per capita economics. And in spite of the macro context, Iroko has made a huge effort over the years to develop the market. I think we probably spent somewhere close to $30 million trying to develop the market. We obviously had a world-class product team. We built specifically for Android. We had peer-to-peer file sharing. We set up kiosks across multiple locations across Lagos, uh, Abuja, and Patakot. We had, and we still do actually have, a dealer network of like 500 individual agents with mobile phones and technology which enables them to sort of peer-to-peer file share. We needed to create our own our own encryption, sort of content encryption around that. So we, we did a lot of work to basically try and win Nigeria. And what we increasingly found was that everything we did as we poured energy resources, you know, the entire focus of the company, you know, people in the West were still the people who were subscribing, right? So every problem that we solved or we're trying to solve in Nigeria, every single problem was completely relevant to our, essentially our US subscribers. So again, 10 years ago, US was our biggest market in terms of revenue. 10 years later, even after we spent a huge amount of time and ignored that market, it still ended up being our largest market, right? So what does that mean from a creator monetization perspective in terms of monetizing an audience directly? My recommendation has really been and always will be like, you know, there are people in the West who have money and they're willing to pay you and they can pay you. And I think, again, you know, I I go back to music. It's, you know, when you see 5,000 people watching a Davido concert or a WizKid concert or a Burner Boy concert, they paid money to be there. They paid 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 dollars to be there. That's real money. If you're in Africa and you see a lot of these concerts, you know, you see like 5,000 people, not many people actually pay to be at that concert. It's actually a, a, almost like a brand activation or some sort of like, you know, prepaid performance type sort of deal, right? So while content needs to be subsidized for the local audience, the local audience is still incredibly important, especially from a legitimacy perspective. I think it's the most important thing. Nigeria is the amplifier, right? Whatever's doing incredibly well in Nigeria resonates around the rest of the world. People truly don't fully appreciate the size of the Nigeria just audience, if you will. So if you see, you know, you see a lot of Nigerian artists, they have like 5 million, 10 million, 15 million followers. Like, that's huge. If you think about that, like, that can only ever come from Nigerians in Nigeria. And very few artists will be able to have that kind of solid fan base. So I think my view is that whatever happens in Nigeria, whatever reigns in Nigeria, basically then travels throughout the rest of the world. So despite the macro factors that impact monetization of the local market, the infrastructure to grow the local market still needs to be built. You know how when you dream as an artist, you dream of one day selling out a stadium. Those dreams are not my primary dreams. That's Oluwatosin Ajibade, better known as... Like my primary dreams is owning the arena where people come to perform. One, because we need the infrastructure, but also because 
you know, that's equity in the ecosystem. It's always, for me, it's always been an ecosystem play. The premise is that ownership is important. Ownership of a creator's audience and ownership of the infrastructure that enables the distribution of content or that underpins the relationship between a creator and his or her audience. Aggregators play an important role from a distribution perspective. And while there may be limited monetization upside for African creators with an African audience, having a sizable audience will always create monetization opportunities from a brand partnership perspective. But to sell directly to an audience requires having a direct relationship with that audience and knowing who your fans are. That's not necessarily possible when the relationship is intermediated by a platform, nor is it possible in an environment of scarce infrastructure. I've toured at least 15 countries in Africa, but do I have the data? No, I don't have that data. Like when I go on Instagram, what I'm seeing is just numbers. And while the macro factors today pose a challenge to monetization, Mr. Easy is making a bet on the development of the market, much like other tech infrastructure companies have done as well. Issue people have when they think about African music, they're like, oh yeah, we don't have the data. There's not enough data. Oh, monetization of music. How much money are you making in Africa? But it's look, only a few people are looking futuristic. And it's the same thing in a business. Like, who would have invested in Paystack? Like, at the time, somebody might have said, oh, no, Nigeria is very cash-based. And I still hear that today. Oh, Nigeria is very cash-based. Ten years ago, who would have known mobile money would be as big? You know, there are more mobile money accounts than bank accounts in some countries. But who would have thought that? There is like 600 million people listening to African music right now, you know, but you just can't track them. You can't find them, but they are there. So the process of developing the local market is necessarily incremental. Let's call it what it is. How many people can pay for a $300 sneaker? How many of your fans can pay for that? But, you know, they could do services. They could buy a soda. They could transfer money with digital banks. They could buy a lottery ticket. We could start interacting with them from now. And all these people love music, right? And so we could start interacting with them now. And we could start building structures to interact with them now. And you can see how this ecosystem development is playing out in terms of what Easy has built thus far. From a music business perspective, typically artists might sign with a label. I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but that label offers you a deal for your IP rights. They bring the cash up front, and then handle all of the marketing and distribution and deal-making with the streaming services. Increasingly, labels are also offering what are known as 360 deals, where they may also manage touring and merchandise and brand deals, and take a cut of that revenue as well, which is typically a larger share of an artist's overall revenue. But for Mr. Easy, who himself was an entrepreneur prior to being a full-time recording artist, he stayed independent. And a lot of people don't know how complicated the music business is. And I just decided to be independent and ultimately build my own ecosystem, my own flywheel, which is where we are at now, which is I'm basically trying to build the coolest um, music company, the coolest and the most important music company for Africa that just specializes on music from the continent that specializes on investing in IP, music IP, asset class and developing marketing, monetizing it. And that's, so that is Empower Africa. 
Empower Africa provides the tools and services independent African artists and other labels need to run their own music businesses. It also acts as an artist discovery platform and has helped to launch and grow the careers of a number of increasingly popular artists like Nandi from Tanzania, Joe Boy from Nigeria, and more. What Empower has become, a company that invests in multiple artists, develops the artists, gives the artists the creative freedom, but splits on the economics and multiple artists. So it was like a sort of super aggregator where 20 African artists from 20 countries can plug into. And then we provide services for the artists. And I think the power is in connecting the continent, connecting Francophone music with, you know, East African bongo music. Like when everything connects, that's when it becomes so big. You know, that's when it can become as big as the Indian scene or as big as, you know, K-pop. And for Easy and Empower Africa, the IP and ownership piece is important as well. I think it's important to have that really homegrown out of Africa for Africa for not just the commercial reasons, but also the sentimental reasons of, you know, Africa having a stake in African IP and ensuring creative and economic freedom for African creatives. That's like the most important thing. So, which has been different for like solid minerals, for instance. Even if African content remains largely an export product today, the question becomes, how can the ecosystem ensure that value accrues back to the African markets from which the content is created? Here's Jason again. In as much as you can make as much money on YouTube, you can make as much money on Instagram, you can make as much money on, on all these other platforms. If you don't own the platforms and you don't generate the value, right? you don't hold the value. We can use South Korea as an example, which is another country with tremendous cultural export. Korean dramas are hugely, hugely popular, popular all around the world. But the platforms which stream that content, I don't think any of them are South, South Korean, right? So in reality, I saw the South Koreans have now realized that with the success of Squid Game, that the vast majority, I think it was like a billion dollars worth of, um, like, I guess, value that, you know, Netflix attributed to it. What South Korea actually saw was, I think it was $22, $23 million of production budget to create that, but a billion dollars of the value. And obviously the, the engagement went to Netflix, right? So I think what I saw the South Koreans are now doing is that they realized they actually have to invest in their own platforms. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no value accruing back to the continent, though. A lot of Nigerian artists, essentially, they base themselves in Lagos because they need to build the heat from Lagos. But they essentially, they monetize globally and their money still ultimately still comes back to Lagos. Where do the musicians actually live? Burner Boy lives in Lagos. So all of his money essentially comes back to Nigeria, right? And he spends it in Nigeria. A lot of the value comes back to Nigeria. And a more developed domestic market then means even greater upside. On the other side... You have a much, much more developed market like South Africa, where Nzamzi content is actually like way, way, way more well monetized in South Africa. And that's why you have much more bigger budgets. You know, people making more money. Productions are much more sort of like, you know, high gloss and more expensive in South Africa because they have a local market there. So ultimately, like so much else we've talked about across past episodes and seasons of The Flip, it comes down to market size. I think ultimately there, there needs to be a time when the market is more developed. But again, that's largely in the hands of the macro, the macro winds of Nigeria, which are just not positive at the moment. So we set out to explore a question. 
how wide is the opportunity for African creators to make a living creating content? If the macro conditions mean African content is primarily an export product, to what extent does that limit the scope of this opportunity? And what needs to happen to expand the scope? So in our retrospective conversation with my B-Mike Shio Fulawio, we were focused on the thousand true fans premise we discussed earlier in the show. How many creators can make a living selling to their thousand true fans? Take a listen. So African creative content as an export product, if that's the status quo, for the development of the creator economy and for the creator economy to be a wider and more inclusive avenue for like work opportunities in the African context, what needs to happen? The scope of opportunities within the creator economy, does it map or track to the level of, or the robustness of the e-commerce ecosystem in a given country? Let's say digital commerce, right? It could be buying a product physical product or it could be buying a digital product but it's still the point is that it's all sold digitally and and in this the context of the majority of commerce takes place offline in african markets does that then inevitably create a very low ceiling for the opportunities for creators so this is the question and it's very very interesting right a lot of the creator economy narrative is about like 1,000 true fans. Right. So when we talk about market size, using the same thinking that we do around how big a market needs to be to be viable should kind of be different. And I think maybe what we're saying is that while there might be more people that will be able to monetize better off 1,000 people, the amount of those people is still going to be quite low, right? That's what we're saying. And you should be careful about, like, it's not that Mr. Tayo can't find a thousand people to buy his course, right? Which makes him a viable and sustainable and growing and profitable, blah, 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 creator. I think we're saying that there can't be that many of him, right? So a thousand true fans comes with like the implicit assumption that those thousand true fans have high enough purchasing power, right? What does it mean to have a thousand true fans that aren't going to buy your stuff? Does that mean that they're not true fans or is there an under-monetization happening in this context? In the context of peer-to-peer -peer music sharing on via USB, right? The issue is not the fandom. The issue is the monetization. Yeah, I agree with you. There's two forces at play, right? One is that you need less people with money, right? Which should make it likely to be more viable. And then the second is that even with that, you're going to hit a ceiling. The point, which should be actually a boon to the market size conversations we have, we've been having about through the seasons of this thing, it's good. For, like you need to, you need less people to want to pay for your stuff. Yeah. So then that's where it's. So that's what we're talking about is volume, right? So I suppose in the U.S. or where the Europe or or whatever, where there's a deeper middle class, then there is a greater number of creators who are able to have their thousand true fans and make a living than there are in African markets because there's a smaller. Yes. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. We're, we're not, we're talking about yeah, well, so volume aggregate. and breadth yeah, aggregate. in aggregate. Yeah. And I guess that's the question, right? Is this question of can uh, African creators make a living? I, the answer is yes, but how many? 
it's not a yes or no, is it possible question, it's a how many can. And so then back to the original question is, what needs to happen in order for that to be realized at scale, I suppose is the question. We know that people are, and more are going to be able to, to monetize. The question is how many and, and how can the development of an ecosystem support a greater amount of creators? And does that just map then to like GDP, you know? The export, I think for sure, I think that's a no-brainer, right? And the way that we're moving seemingly, because we kind of had like selling CDs, right? And you're paying $10 a CD, whatever. And then you're getting all your music for free. We went into that. And I think we're going back to $10 a CD, right? We're kind of moving towards like a per unit monetization model. The whole premise, right, is you need your thousand, whatever, and they're going to buy one thing at a time from you. Like, as opposed to like the, you're always going to have the motherfuckers that are getting millions and millions and millions of streams and at whatever, 10 cents a stream, it makes sense, right? But you're getting people that are saying, actually, I'm not going to try and serve a million people. I'm going to try and serve a thousand and they must buy each song for me for whatever, right? And because of these tools, you are able to sell one song at a time, right? And it seems like where there's, maybe we'll end up in the middle, but the shift now, the, the momentum is going towards, back towards the CD. The perpetual cycle of bundling and unbundling and rebundling. But then the, the point I suppose is, it ends up not being an either or. Now there's like a spectrum or a scope of opportunities. Right. And you can, exactly. you can make money and people are making money in the unbundled way. And then they are doing rebundling yeah. as well. And, and, and then that's a supplemental or additive revenue stream on top of the exactly. unbundled. Yeah. And the argument might be that the business model of the export and that being able to sell the CD kind of vibe can subsidize the consumption locally right and then the more that happens like you kind of have a multiplier effect right if you are selling enough to a market that's buying and then through your channel you're employing people and da -da -da, they have more income to spend on these kind of things like you could chart that kind of path it feels far-fetched but i mean what do i know it's like i guess that's what that should look like yeah, right or how it may happen that's it for this week's episode of The Flip. Next week, we expand this topic even further to talk about ownership. Yes, we can subsidize content for local audience, but is there now a better way? Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get that episode straight to your phone. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you next week.